When's the last time that you had the thought, what good can possibly come out of this? Maybe it's a hard moment that you went through, a, a disappointment. Maybe it's a failure in your life. Maybe it's a hardship, a trial that you experienced, a, a health issue that you experienced. Maybe you lost your job and, and wondered how God was going to provide in this and why you and why now. Sometimes in fear and maybe even in frustration, we might find ourselves asking this, maybe even out loud, but at least in our minds, well, what good can possibly come out of this? You know, one of my birthday traditions, it's my birthday this past week, one of my birthday traditions is to take that Starbucks free birthday reward to go get that venti and to sit down and uh, I just look at my calendar. I go back to a year prior and I just look at all the things on the calendar. I look at trips that we would take. I look at meetings that we had, just kind of memories go through. And so I did that again this year and uh, my wife asked me afterwards, was that encouraging? And I said, well, no, not really. <laughs> a little bit like punishment, going back and reliving 2020 and 2021, right? It, it really wasn't that encouraging to sit back and look and see missions trips canceled and things changed and vacations canceled and a Christmas family gathering that didn't happen because of family members who had COVID and we couldn't meet at their house and all sorts of things that I was kind of reminded about that recently I've forgotten as things feel a little bit normal now. And I told her, I said, you know, it really wasn't that encouraging looking at that, but what is encouraging is to see where we're at now. And see God's provision. And see that he was faithful the whole time to provide and to sustain. And don't we find ourselves in those situations where what's encouraging isn't our circumstance. Certainly our, our disappointments remind us that we can't find hope in our present circumstances. We can't just hope that circumstances change and then therefore things will be okay. Our hope is in the God who rules over every circumstance, who rules over every season. The God whose promises never fail, who, whose plans cannot be stopped, who, who reigns and rules this morning. The God who has loved us in Jesus Christ. Our hope is found in him. You know, even as you read through the story of the Bible, imagine if you had not heard the book of Genesis before. Imagine if the first time that you had heard the words of these book, this, this book is when we started it this past year. Put yourself in, in the shoes of the original audience as Moses is recounting to the nation of Israel their history. And imagine like you didn't know how the story ended. And here are the twists and here are the turns. And what is God going to do in this? Imagine that you heard about God creating Adam and Eve and his likeness and in his image, putting them in paradise where the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden wasn't just living in fellowship with the animals and all this delicious fruit to eat, but the greatest thing in paradise was a relationship and fellowship with the God who created them. And they lost it. They disobeyed God and rejected his loving authority over them, eating of the fruit, kicked out of the garden. And you might wonder, well, what good is God going to bring out of this? And their sons, Cain and Abel, it took just one generation for murder to come into the world. Cain killing Abel. Now, Abel was the one that God promised that he would send redemption through the line of Abel. He would send this one to crush the head of the serpent, one to defeat Satan and sin and death. And here's Cain murdering Abel. And you hear that and you might wonder what good can possibly come out of this. And here's God delivering Seth, a new line, a blessed lineage. Well, if the descendants of Seth, as they multiply and 
fill the earth, they start to look a lot like the descendants of his brother Cain. And the earth grew so wicked and disobedient to God and violent that God judged the whole earth and sent a flood, flooding the world. Only one was found righteous, Noah, and therefore him and his family were saved on the ark. The rest of the earth destroyed, and you might wonder as you hear that, what good can possibly come out of this? Well, in Noah, God brought a new beginning, hope that would come in in Noah, a a new beginning with his three sons called to multiply and, and fill the earth once again. And while they obeyed God in multiplying and filling the earth, their descendants quickly led to this place, this gathering in a city called Babel, a tower built to display the glory of people opposing the glory of the one true God. And here comes God's judgment once again, scattering the nations, dispersing them across the face of the earth, dividing them by language and by nation and by ethnicity. And you might look at that and wonder what good can possibly come out of this. And every time we see God at work, we see his plans unfolding. We, we see sin multiplied throughout the earth, but we see that God is merciful, that he is gracious, that his plans cannot be stopped, that his promise endures forever. Even with the people of the earth divided and scattered across the face of the earth, we see God's good plan still being administered. And that's what we look at today as we take a closer look at Genesis chapter 11. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 10 through 32. We're going to go ahead and just finish off the rest of this chapter today. This will be our last installment of Genesis for a little while. I'll preach next week, Lord willing, kind of a one-off sermon in 2 Timothy. Uh, I then have the opportunity, the elders have given me a summer sabbatical, so I will take a sabbatical, and the plan is to come back in August, and let's pick back up in Genesis chapter 12, but we leave off today in chapter 11. Chapter 11, you can turn to page 8 of your Bible there in the, in the pew if you need that. So if you don't own a Bible, just take that Bible home with you today. That's our, our gift to you. We're going to be looking at Genesis 11, the best way to stay engaged, track along with what we see there in the Bible. We find ourselves looking at a genealogy again today, and I'm going to approach it as I have other genealogies by reading it as we go, and I know you love hearing me try to pronounce these Hebrew names. We're going to make our way through that again today. Now, the the genealogy here in chapter 11, it goes with the genealogy that we saw back in chapter 5, the genealogy of of Seth. Now, in chapter 5, there were 10 generations listed there, 10 generations from Seth to Noah. And here in this genealogy in chapter 11, there are 10 generations listed from Shem to Abram. So track with me here. Together, 20 generations trace a line from Adam to Abram. 20 generations who would be named. And of course, uh, Abram later named Abraham. Adam, the first man. Noah, the, the new beginning for humanity. And Abraham, the father of Israel, who became the father of of a multitude, the one that God would use to bless the nations. And we mentioned this earlier on when people asked the question, well, was Adam historical? Was he a real figure? Well, of course he was. Moses, the narrator of Genesis, connects Adam and Noah and Abraham. And very few people, even outside of Christianity, it's not debated whether Abraham was a real person. Or it shouldn't be debated whether Noah was a real person either or Adam was a real person because the narrator of Genesis connects them all together. 
So either what we see here is just a switching up of the genre, where the beginning is myth, and then we get into history, or all of this really happens, which is actually true. All of this has happened. It's history. It's a book of history. And here we see Adam, Noah, Abram, all connected. Where we left off the last time, the nations were divided. And again, that may seem like a, a, a bad situation, okay? Everyone's dispersed across the face of the earth. There's confusion. They can't understand one another's language. But this would actually be the stage that was set for Abraham to be blessed as the father of all nations. And ultimately, from the line of Abraham, for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised serpent crusher to come from this line. Now, Genesis, the word means beginning. That's what we thought about as we started off this book. Genesis is a book of beginnings. If you want to understand God, if you want to understand yourself, if you want to understand this world, then we need to understand this book of Genesis. And here in chapter 11, we see the beginning of God's plan to bless the nations and to bring them back to himself. And in this last section, here's Genesis, the last sermon at least we'll have on this section of Genesis, we find comfort. We find comfort in the beginning of God's plan for redemption. As we look at this genealogy and we see God moving his plan forward. We've talked about this, this book as a book of comfort. We may often think we'll go to the Psalms if we need to be comforted. We'll go to Romans chapter 8 if we need to be comforted. We'll go back and read through one of the Gospels if we need to find comfort. Well, I hope our time in the book of Genesis has reminded us of this book being a book of comfort, hope in God, his faithfulness to his promise. Well, what I want you to see this morning in Genesis chapter 11, the outline for this morning, two reminders of comfort in the Lord. Two reminders of comfort in the Lord. First off in verses 10 through 26, first reminder, God's plans cannot be thwarted. God's plans can't be thwarted. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, we, we read there in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Now this is the fifth time in the book of Genesis that we've seen this phrase, that the generations of. And we've noticed throughout our time here the intentional structure that Moses, the narrator of Genesis, uses throughout this book to move the story forward. He speaks in generations, or the Hebrew word toledo. He just goes through the generations here and lists them out. So in Genesis 2, we had the generations of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 5, we saw the generations of Adam. In Genesis 6, the, the generations of, of Noah. In Genesis 10, we saw the table of nations, the, the generations of Noah's three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And here in chapter 11, verse 10, Moses, he circles back to Noah's son, Shem, and tracks his line. Now, remember, Shem was the one in Genesis 9, verse 26, that was blessed. The blessing there pronounced upon Shem, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And so we see this seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent starting back at Genesis 3 continuing to be traced here in chapter 11. Now this line of Shem, we, we already saw it in chapter 10. You may think back to the table of nations and say, well, we've already seen the line of Shem. Why is he listed a second time here in chapter 11? Well, as we make our way through this genealogy, 
we'll, we'll see that this particular genealogy makes a different way through Shem's de uh, descendants. It goes a different direction. And there are a few differences to notice here in the genealogy. No, number one, we see shorter lifespans after the flood. One difference we see here, so in verse 10, you see that Shem lived to be 600 years old. And then down in verse 24, the lifespan of Nahor is significantly less. He lived for 148 years. So with the spread of sin and wickedness, we see life expectancy decreasing after the flood. And as we make our way through the rest of Genesis, we'll see that Abraham lived for 175 years. And then Joseph for 110 years. And again, I, I think we should take this all as these are real years. Just like it was real that Joseph lived 110 years, it's real that we see here Shem living 600 years. There's something for us to track here throughout the story of Genesis as we see the spread of sin and wickedness and death and the impact that has on humanity. Uh, another difference we notice here is that this genealogy, it's not intended to be a complete family tree of descendants. You, you see the phrase other sons and daughters, it's repeated here. So it's, it's selective who's being mentioned. I think these 10 generations are lined up to match the previous 10 generations listed back in Genesis chapter 5. So we see a, a movement here away from highlighting the spread of sin and death. You don't, you don't find the phrase, and he died, in this particular genealogy. It's absent from this chapter while it was repeated through the genealogy of chapter 5. And so this genealogy has a noticeable shift from highlighting the spread of sin and death to focus in on God's promise. Well, let me read for us, starting in, in verse 1 here, excuse me, verse 10 here of chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apachid two years after the flood. And Shem lived, after he fathered Apachid, 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived, after he fathered Peleg, 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived, after he fathered Reu, 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Let's pause for a moment here in this genealogy. You notice verse 16, it's the midpoint, it's the dividing line of this genealogy. We see Eber and his son Peleg mentioned. Now back in chapter 10, Eber and Peleg, they were mentioned there, but the rest of the lineage in chapter 10 traced through Eber's other son, Joktan. Joktan's line was traced back in chapter 10, but, but here the descendants of Peleg are traced. Now why is that an important detail? I mean, these are just both weird, unusual names, maybe they're not that familiar in the rest of the story of the Bible. Well, there's an important difference here, a different direction that's traced. If you trace Joktan's line, it led to Babel, a place of dishonor to the one true God. Now remember that the name Eber, we look back in, in chapter 10, shares the same root word as Hebrew. See, Peleg, the Hebrews could trace their roots all the way to Abram. 
So, so Peleg Mine led to Abram. It led to promise, led to hope, led to blessing for the nation. One commentator put it like this, Jotham's line led to disgrace, and Peleg's line led to grace, to God's plan of redemption. Again, in the middle of this mess, what good would God bring out of this? Well, he would bring grace. His plan could not be thwarted. He was working the entire time to bring about the blessing that he had promised. His grace was on the move. Let's keep tracking. Let's look at verses 20 through 26. Starting in verse 20. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarah. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarah 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarah had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarah lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Moses has moved the story forward here from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem to Abram, who would be named Abraham. In other words, God's plan could not be thwarted. His promise endured through the murder of Abel. His promise endured the flood. Everything was destroyed in the flood except for what was on the ark, Noah, his descendants, and the animals there. But God's promise endured through the flood, through Babel, where the nations were scattered, where there was confusion caused by speaking different languages and division. Yet this would not stop the blessing and the plan of the Lord. God brought good out of all of this. That's what the original audience would have heard. They would have been tracking with this. They'd have been following this name. And they would have thought, wow, look at God's faithfulness. Look at his grace. Look at his provision. You know, we began this series, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Genesis, pointing out that this is a book of comfort. Moses wrote the book of Genesis to comfort God's fearful people. The wandering nation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness. Through this book, he taught ancient Israel that their God is the sovereign king of the universe. The creator of the ends of the earth, that is their God. The one who created the universe, he reigns and rules over it, meaning he is the Lord of history. He taught them here in the book of Genesis about the, the sovereignty of God. That everything that exists in the universe was made by their God. And therefore, all of creation and all of history is completely under his control. We often feel like life is out of control. God's never out of control. We are often caught off guard. There are often twists and turns and surprises and disappointments in our life. That never happens with God. He reigns and he rules over all of history. He has a plan that is sure. Nothing can redirect his plans. Nothing happens apart from what his will decrees. He's not like us in that regard. He's sovereign. He's in control. And that's a good thing. It brings us rest. It's why we come here this morning. We're not all out on a golf course or eating brunch somewhere because our hope is in God. Our hope's not just in what the next day can bring us, what type of, uh, of enjoyment we can possibly muster up here on earth. In fact, our enjoyment is rooted 
first and foremost in this God who created us, that we get to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this genealogy reminds us as Christians that we can take comfort that the God who created everything in the beginning will redeem everything in the end. He is the creator. He's the redeemer. That's how he's presented in the book of Genesis. Take hope in this one who created everything by the power of his word, spoke light into darkness by saying, let there be light. This creator, he is the redeemer. He's full of power. And just as he created by the power of his word, he is redeeming by the power of his word today, working his plan as he reigns from heaven. You see, Moses began telling God's people their history in the book of Genesis by holding God up as this sovereign creator and the redeemer. And what they needed to know back then, what they needed to be reminded of back then, the same thing needs to be heard by God's people today. By the church. We are God's people here in the New Covenant. We need to be reminded today that since God created everything in the universe, it is all under his control. Through trial, through temptation, through sin and failure, through suffering, our God is right there with us. We are his people. He's with us the whole time. We might often wonder what good can possibly come out of this. But God's never wondering. He's never wondering what he should do or did he make a mistake or should he not have done this. God is at work the whole time for his glory and for the good of his people. And isn't that one of the greatest means of comfort for the Christian? To know that the God who loves you in Christ is in absolute control to know that the same God who created this world he's holding it together to know that there's no need to to panic there's no need to try to secure a future for ourselves God has a future for us it's so much better than you and I could write it is so much better than what you and I could draw up he has a future that is good for us and it ends with us getting more of him, the one who created the world and all that is in it, he's reigning right now. His plans unfolding from heaven, his purposes, they will be accomplished. His plans cannot be thwarted. This is his world, and he's in control. I believe that's what the, the nation of Israel heard as they went through this genealogy. For us, it might just be a part of our Bible reading plan that we buzz through to get through to, to the good stuff, right? For them, I think they heard this, and they were reminded, look at God's faithfulness. Look at his patience. Look at his promise enduring. Well, brothers and sisters, may we be reminded of just how much we can trust our God and King. He is worthy. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is not to be doubted. He is one in whom we can find rest. And may we be reminded of God's precious promises fulfilled in his son Jesus Christ. Many of you are familiar with Romans chapter 8 verse 28. Well, it needs to be more than just a good coffee mug verse for us. You take Romans 8:28 and you look back here on Genesis chapter 11 and I think it takes an even richer and fuller and deeper meaning that we know that th for those who God loves, all things work together for good for those who are called 
according to his purpose. Romans 8.32 reminds us of God's faithfulness to his people in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, we live in the New Covenant. We live in a place that's different even than the nation of Israel. We look back on the cross and the empty tomb. Indeed, that's why we gather here this morning to praise God for what he's done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we know that all the promises of God have been sealed in Jesus. They are yes and amen in him. We find rest in a person, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Let's consider this second point of comfort we find in verses 27 through 32. Second point of comfort, God's grace shines in darkness. God's grace shines in darkness. Verse 27 begins a new Toledot or generation. The sixth generation is mentioned here in verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Now the story of Genesis, it moves very quickly through the first 11 chapters of the book. But here at the end of chapter 11, things slow down big time. And God willing, the rest of our time in the book of Genesis, as we track through, we're going to see how slow the story goes at this point. This new generation, or Toledo, will last through chapter 25, verse 12 in Genesis. This begins what's known as the patriarchal system. So the rest of Genesis, it traces through the patriarchs of Israel. So Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it goes on and kind of finishes off with Jacob's son, Joseph, which leads into another book of the Pentateuch and the Exodus. So the, the rest of this book, it moves very slowly, and this traces through Abraham and his Family. Let's look at verse 27. Let me read through this section for us. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishbah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died. This section serves as a link from the, the first part of the book of Genesis to the rest of the book as it introduces Abraham and his family. And we find more familiar names here, like, like Lot. He's a more familiar name that we see in the Bible, Abraham's nephew. Uh, Lot's father was Haran, and we read in verse 28 that Haran died before his father Terah died. So we see Terah kind of assuming his leadership role even here over Lot. And we see another familiar figure, Abram's wife, Sarai, whose name is, is later changed to Sarah. And in this genealogy, we already received the important detail that she's barren, that she had no child. So the problem's introduced even right here. We'll see the problem spelled out more in the rest of Genesis, but the problem is introduced here. How will God bring about blessing to the descendants of Abraham if his wife is barren? 
how will God possibly bring good out of that messy and difficult situation that's introduced right here in this genealogy? Now, Ur of the Chaldeans, it was a land of pagan gods. The land of Ur was a lot like Babylon, that we just considered last week. It was a godless place. It was a land of idolatry and sin. And at that time, Abram and his family lived in this land of idolatry, and they were idol worshipers. The book of Joshua, in chapter 24, verse 2 of, of Joshua, we, we look back there, and it says that Terah and his family, they served other gods, lowercase g, false gods, idols, did not worship the one true God. Even if you look at the, the meaning of the names for Terah, and Sarai, and Milcah, all of their names are connected to worshiping the moon. So, so their, their names even reflect back to pagans, idol worshipers, giving themselves to the false god, not to the one true God, the Creator and Redeemer. In other words, the land of Ur was a lot like Babel. It was a mess. It was a dark place of worshiping false gods. And God brought something unmistakably good out of that mess, out of that darkness. The important detail is there in verse 31. It's that they left this place. They went out from Ur of the Chaldeans, out of this land of sin, out of this land of, of worshiping false gods, out of this pagan land, they, they went out. Now, we don't find the details here in chapter 11 as, as why did they leave? Why did they leave? Did they just get tired of it and need to change the pace? Get a job transfer, decide to move on to another city? Well, no. We'll get a little bit of a, actually more detail. Let's take a sneak peek. I do this often, but since we're going to take quite a bit of a time out here for a few months, uh, look at the first verse of chapter 12. We get the details. Why did they get out of Ur of the Chaldeans? We read that, that God was the one who called them out. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be God called him out of darkness by the power of his word. God called him out of idolatry, out of a life of sin, out of a land of, of, of sin and self-glory to live in the glory of God, out of a land of, of worshiping false gods to, to be led out to worship the one true God, to be in covenant relationship with him. This brief mention here in chapter 11, verse 31, introduces an amazing story of God's grace. Remember in Genesis 1 that God spoke light into darkness, saying, let there be light. Well, here with Abram, God was still speaking light into darkness, calling Abram out of darkness, out of sin, to live in the glory of the light of the one true God. And by faith, Abram left. He turned away from sin, trusting God, and God led him out, giving him a new name, bringing him back to God, giving him the name Abraham, promising him land and descendants, promising him this relationship to walk in the glorious light of his creator, promising him to know this Redeemer personally, 
and intimately, living as a new creation, therefore given a new name. You see, God had a plan that could not be thwarted, a blessing that would endure, and that's what the rest of the book of Genesis is about. God would not give up establishing his kingdom on earth. He always had a plan. It started with Adam and Eve to create a people, his kingdom, people that would live under his reign and rule, who would know and enjoy his glory and indeed spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And with Adam and Eve's failure, that plan didn't stop. He continued that plan through Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham all the way look at this picture here of God just making a new beginning with Noah. Here he's forming a new people through Abraham. God did something here, the beginning of which is in this moment in chapter 11. God did something here that changed the world forever, that blessed the nations. God started something then that has changed your life today, Christian, that has changed your eternity, that has secured a future for you that you could not have possibly secured for yourself. God has brought you rest in him today. What we see here in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And you might have to ask the question, why did God do all of this? Now, I know many of us are good reform folks, and we will first answer with God's glory, and that is a wonderful answer, and it is so true. But don't miss out on this. Certainly God's glory, God did this because he loved us. God created Adam and Eve because he loved them. They were his people, his idea. His creation, created in His image and in His likeness. God loved them, and therefore He didn't give up on them. He set forth a plan of redemption. And God loved the nations so much that He called Abraham out, using him to be a blessing for the nations. God loved the people He created so much that His plan of redemption would not be stopped because indeed it was a pursuit of of love. You see, God created Adam and Eve, and, and he loved them as those made in his image. God was right to judge them for their sin. God is holy, and he is loving. He is just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. God judges sin. He is right to do that. And even there in that judgment of Genesis chapter 3, God's redeeming love was as he promised that he would send one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, would crush Satan, would defeat him once and for all. And as sin and wickedness spread, Cain killing Abel, God's loving pursuit continued on. God raised up Seth. The line of Seth grew wicked as the rest of the world. But what did God do? God gave humanity a new beginning in Noah because God God loved his people. Through the line of Shem, God raised up Abraham to bless the nations because God loved the people of the earth. And ultimately, God loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus. You see, this new beginning with Abraham would lead to Jesus. You can trace it in genealogy in Luke chapter 3 from Abraham to Jesus. We see that all who are in Christ are, are preserved to be recipients of God's grace and blessing. And just as God called Abraham out of Ur, out of the land of sin and darkness, through Jesus Christ, God is calling the nations back to himself. Out of darkness, out of 
idolatry into worship, into relationship with him. He's calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation to repent of their sin, to turn away from sin and darkness, to, to trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in him there is light, in him there is life. And in Jesus, God ultimately established his plan of redemption and blessing for the nations. In Jesus, God fulfills all of his promises. He made promises, and he keeps them in Jesus. On a hill at Calvary, the long-established plan of God was fulfilled. For Jesus, the Lamb of God, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would trust in him. There is no greater love than this. The Son of God dying to pay for the sins of sinners. There's no greater demonstration of love that we're waiting to see. The greatest demonstration of love has already been revealed. Jesus, the Son of God, dying for sinners. On the third day, the tomb was found empty. Jesus, the Son of God, he was not there. He rose from the dead as proof that he is who he said he was. He's the long-awaited one, the Messiah that came to ransom captive Israel, to save them from slavery and sin and death. He's the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, 15, and the only one who's powerful enough to crush the head of Satan, the serpent, Jesus, the Son of God. There's no one like him. He got up from the dead on the third day as proof that he is the Son of God. And in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, there is victory over sin and Satan and death. In Christ, the nations are blessed. That's why we care so much about the gospel getting in the nations. That's why we pray on Sunday mornings, trying to make our way through country after country. We did it one time. We got through praying for every nation on earth. We're trying to do it again here in our pastoral prayers. Why do we care so much about places like North Korea and Portugal, places many of us will never go? Because we care about God and His glory. We care about people knowing Jesus and living with Him for the rest of eternity. And therefore, we receive this commission that Jesus has given us to go and to make disciples of all nations. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of universe. And in Christ, the nations are blessed. In Christ, a people are being formed for the glory of God. A people forever blessed by Him. What you need to know here, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. What I want you to know is this. You will never know a greater love than this. You will never have a greater love than Jesus a God who will love you more than you could ever imagine. He's already demonstrated his love in sending Jesus to die. You see, the good news of the gospel, it tells us the bad news, first off, that we're going to be judged by God because of our sin and disobedience against him. We've broken his commandments. We have rejected his loving authority over us, and there is not one thing that you can do to make things right with him. There's nothing you can do in good works or charitable efforts to bridge the gap that is created because of sin between you and the holy God who created you. But there is good news this morning. There's good news that Genesis has pointed us to. Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the only one who lived perfectly, the only one who could pay for sin by dying on the cross and taking the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin against God. Jesus paid the price. He rose from the dead, and he offers new life this morning who would turn and put their faith in him. Would you turn 
and trust in Him today, if you don't know this God, you've not put your faith in Jesus, would today be the day that you come to know Him and live in relationship with Him? I hope it is. You can talk to any of our pastors at one of the doors on the way out. Talk to someone sitting around, one of our members. We'd be happy to talk with you more about what it would look like to repent of your sin, to find salvation and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ today. So brothers and sisters, as we close out this portion of Genesis, may we be reminded that our comfort is found in in God alone. Our comfort is found in, in God's faithfulness to His promises. He makes promises and He keeps them. And He's kept all of His promises in Jesus Christ. And when you find yourself in a situation Maybe even this week, when you're tempted to think, what good can possibly come out of this? May we all remember, especially this, that God is at work for His glory and for the good of those who love Him. His plans cannot be thwarted. His grace shines in darkness. and His grace is more than sufficient for you and I. So carry us on until that last day. And may we remember that the God who sovereignly created everything in the beginning will redeem everything in the end. May we look to Christ and rest in Him. And that's what we do now as we prepare to receive the Lord's